But my name is David, and uh, I came to work at Living Streams in 2001. Um, and, I, and I came to Living Streams because I couldn't find another job. <laughs> I was in Southern Oregon, and I really couldn't find somebody that would take me. Um, but I had a connection with founding pastor Mark Buckley, so I came to work with the youth here. And um, I've been here ever since, except for a couple times. One time, um, I was in Dangriga, Central America, Belize, and, uh, and the elders and Mark, you know, contacted me and asked me if I would consider becoming the lead pastor. So I went from being someone who um, was working at Living Streams because I couldn't find <laughs> anywhere else to work uh, to be asked to be the lead pastor and really had to go through a process with the Lord and, and felt called. I really did feel called to come back with my family and serve in that role at Living Streams, which was neat. Um, and then over this last year, my family was again um, out and we went to um, Ireland, this town, small town um, Ireland, and uh, we were outnumbered by farms and uh, cattle and sheep by quite a bit. Um, the people were, there's about 5,000 people and and uh, we were there for that season. And, and now that I'm back, um, been back three months, it's this interesting thing that I'm trying to unpack myself, so don't ask me what it means. Um, but I feel sent to Living Streams this time. And uh, it's been very interesting. It is a little different, but I do feel sent. And part of that um, being sent has to do with what I'm going to unpack over these next few weeks. I, I, I don't know what it fully means, but I know it, it does mean that I'm supposed to share um, what I learned while sitting in, in Ireland for those nine months. Through fasting and prayer for the church in Ireland, I feel like the Lord showed me some things, and I'm careful with this word, but it felt like some sort of revelation um, that I could come home and share with us as we face what we face um, here in America. So, uh, again, I'm not trying to make too big a deal out of this, because I, I listened to a message by a lady this week, and it was like her message was way better than all the stuff that I have. So that was kind of a bummer. And then I've been reading this book, and this book lays it out so much better than everything I have. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, but I have what I have, and I am who I am, and that's okay, you know? So that's what, that's what we're going to do. Um, right now, we'll jump into post-Christian antidote over these next three weeks. Um, okay, so um, in the greatest movie trilogy of all time. How to Train Your Dragon. <laughs> well, you haven't seen it? I mean, no question in my mind at all. Um, there's a scene where there's a dragon flying, and this dragon is very powerful, and, and, and yet there's these, there's these other people around the dragon flying on less powerful dragons, and they're banging like pots and pans, literally, and they're screaming and they're shouting, and because they've realized that all of the noise can cause the guidance system of this powerful dragon to be um, thrown off, and it caused the dragon to be disoriented and not know where to go or not be able to see clearly. Um, and that's an image that I feel like uh, the church, this powerful, powerful thing um, that is bought and purchased with the blood of Christ and filled with the power of Christ by His Spirit, um, is going through a season where there's a lot of clanging and banging and shouting and screaming all around us. And uh, I feel like it's easy for us as Christians, um, including myself, easy for us as pastors even, um, easy for us as people who go to church um, to become disoriented or confused uh, or even discouraged during this time. 
And so what we're trying to do is figure out how we can chart a course for us through the post-Christian winds that are blowing and swirling around us. And that's what this message is all about. Um, There's no doubt intense post-Christian winds are blowing in America. We can see it and feel it in so many ways. We were once a society full of respect towards the influence of Jesus and the transcendence of his Bible. But we are now just like the crowd shouting, we will not have this man rule over us which shouted at Jesus' trial two millennia ago. Um, In this book, The Great Evangelical Recession, I have two books I'm going to recommend. This one is, neither of these are super Christian nerd books, but this one's close, real close. Um, But it's really good what he does in here. And one of his quotes says, uh, the American church stands today on the precipice of a great evangelical recession. While we focus on a few large churches and dynamic national leaders, the church's overall numbers are shrinking. Donations are drying up and disappearing. Its political fervor is dividing the movement from within. In addition to all these internal crises, the outside host culture is quietly but quickly turning antagonistic and hostile towards evangelicals. And this guy was writing in 2013. And much of what he's described has not only become true, but probably more intense than he was even thinking at that time. In another book, this is the, the lady I listened to a message from her, but um, she wrote a book called Confronting Christianity. It's 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, which has been good. And, and her name is Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. And she says, in this cultural moment, when our non-Christian friends look at the Christian faith, they often see a history of racism an anti-intellectual mindset, homophobia, and the denigration of women. And it's tempting to think that the best thing Christians can do is batten down the hatches and cling on for dear life while the waves of secularization wash over us. And I, would, I, I have a different metaphor in mind, and that's, that's that there's these post-Christian winds blowing all around. And there's this fire of God that lives inside our hearts, this fire of faith. And these post-Christian winds, as they swirl and they swirl, there's a competition to see, will the fire go out or will it not? And we'll talk more about what these post-Christian winds are and what all that means. But I was in Ireland for nine months. And in Ireland, it's really clear that um, the society... And the truth is, much of the church has become post-Christian. And I know that sounds funny, but it's true. It might have been a few hundred years ago, actually, when the church in Ireland became post-Christian. But nobody knew because it didn't become post-Catholic until about maybe 30 or 40 years ago. Truly, Christ had left the building quite some time ago. But because there was the form and there was the activity, no one really knew for quite some time. Reminds me of that story in the book of Judges with Samson. Remember Samson, the, the big strong guy with the long flowing hair? And Samson was a guy who was filled with the power of God. And he was able to deliver and set free the people of Israel from captivity, from slavery, from oppression in many different radical ways. And yet he was a man who compromised a lot. He was a man that played a lot with sin, who kind of had one hand in God's hand and one hand in the world's hand and lived that way for such a long time that at one point he was starting to um, tell Delilah, his girlfriend, <laughs> um, about his hair and that that's the source of his strength and, 
and he was thinking, no big deal. And, and, and at one point, she cut his hair. And then this verse happens. To me, one of the saddest verses in the Bible. It says, he did not know that the Lord had left him. So Samson was, was there in that moment. She had cut his hair. He goes to sleep. She says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke from his sleep and thought, I'll just go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. It reminds me of that time in Revelation where Jesus is talking to the seven churches and he says, you need to do these things or otherwise I will remove your lampstand. And so we as the Christian church today and always, as the followers of Christ, we've got to figure out how to make sure we don't end up in a place where the Lord has left us because of our compromise or our confusion or, or whatever. Or the Lord removes his lampstand from his church or the church that we're a part of. So that's what we're up against. That's what we're fighting it against. And in uh, Ireland, that was really evident and really clear. And I would um, spend my Thursdays actually fasting and praying. And it was interesting because I was, I was feeling so burdened and so stirred up about the condition of the church in Ireland and how weak and how frail it was. Now, there were some awesome disciples of Christ for sure, but overall, it had become something very weak and very frail, and most of the time, they were in hiding. They were just trying to lay low, and I knew that's not what God had for his children, for his people, and so I was so burdened by this that actually when I would fast and pray on Thursdays, it brought relief, which is interesting, and I would pray with other people that I knew wanted the same thing. And over time, that's where I kind of started to receive this revelation of the Lord. I started to think about the fire of God. I th started to think about the fire of God in scriptures. And, and I came up with these three things that we're going to share over these next three weeks. The first is we need to come out of hiding. And we're using the story of Moses and the fire of God to illustrate that. Second, we need to pick a fight with the darkness. And you may or may not be comfortable with that word fight, but we'll, we'll describe what that means and and how to go about that. And we're going to use the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel with the fire of God. And then the last one is we need to be together and go together. And hopefully it'll make sense, but basically we need to be together together. We need to figure out what that means. And we're going to use the story in Acts chapter 2 of the apostles when the fire of God came to them. So that's the, the roadmap that we got. Uh, will you join me in Exodus chapter 3 as we jump into the first, which is to come out of hiding. You guys with me? Yeah? We got to be together. Yeah. All right. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord, Adonai, saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, 
Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So here's this story we're all very familiar with, most of us, where, where God comes and visits a guy named Moses and speaks to him out of a burning bush. And, and in this story, we have that exact thing. We have, we have Moses who is in Midian. Uh, he's actually spent 40 years born and raised in Egypt. Uh, there was a, a rough command that came from the Egyptians to kill all the Hebrew boy babies. So Moses' mom put him in a basket and put him in the Nile River and, and just couldn't bear to see him killed and thought, this is the best I can do. And by God's grace, that baby was taken in by Pharaoh's, one of Pharaoh's daughters and was raised. And so 40 years, Moses was raised as an Egyptian, adopted into this family. And then somewhere at the end of that 40 years or somewhere along the process, there was some sort of internal struggle going on with Moses where he was becoming more and more clear who he was and who he wasn't. And I don't know all the conversations. We don't get the whole story. But he was realizing that he's not actually an Egyptian. He's actually a Hebrew. And the Hebrews were slaves of the Egyptians. And somehow in this internal dilemma or struggle, there came a moment where Moses saw an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew. And Moses stepped in to defend the Hebrew and killed the Egyptian. And that only caused a greater internal struggle to happen within Moses that caused him to flee Egypt. He actually ran out of Egypt into the wilderness and landed in this place called Midian. And he had been there for 40 years, just trying to get that internal struggle to finally go away. And he sees this bush that's burning while he's out with his father-in-law's sheep. And something in his heart says, go check this out. Maybe it was his mind. I don't know. But he goes and checks out this bush. And as he approaches the bush, he hears this bush say his name. Moses, Moses, which actually means out of the water. It's like God is saying, Moses, I've been watching you since the moment you were born. I know everything about you. And I have a job for you. And as you read these next few chapters, we know that the job that, Moses, that God had was for Moses to leave Midian and to return to Egypt and to work towards setting the Hebrew slaves free from Egypt. And Moses, his very first reaction was to hide. Because when he thought about God, made him nervous, when he thought about himself in this light, it made him nervous. Actually, I want to read to you some of Moses' responses to God as God's unveil, un, unveiling to him the plan he has for him. Exodus 3, verse 11 says, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses, or, uh, Exodus three thirteen. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Basically saying, God, I wasn't raised a Hebrew. I don't know the Hebrew Hebrew stuff. I was raised an Egyptian. I don't even know your name. Exodus 4.1, Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? 4.10, Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. You could tell maybe God was getting a little frustrated. <laughs> I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to me, which is right now. I am slow of speech and tongue. And then 4.13, Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. 
I mean, this is, this is, this is what God is like. Moses, I got you, man. I know you. We're going to do this. And Moses is like, yeah. You know, he's just not into it. He's reluctant. His tendency is to hide. He wants to just stay in hiding. And that, that's, that's us as well. That's the tendency of Christians. That's what I got to see some in the church over there in Ireland. That they really did feel like what that lady had said, the best thing to do is maybe just batten down the hatches and lay low for a while. And that's the exact opposite of what God was calling Moses to do. He wanted Moses to go. And Moses had this interaction with the fire of God, a little burning bush God. And uh, as he began to say yes and be obedient to what God was asking, he got to see that that burning bush God was not just a burning bush God. But as he went into Egypt, he got to see that the, that fire of God that was consuming that bush actually ended up consuming all of Egypt and all the gods of Egypt and bringing this great world power honestly to its knees through ten plagues. And causing this Egyptian power to finally say, all right, fine. Let the captives go. Let the slaves be free. And they were led out of Egypt with this great victory, this great joy. And they went out into the wilderness and they became a nation that still exists today. But Moses got to see that this God was a lot more than just a burning bush God. He actually was, 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 was powerful. And then as that, as that fire came and wreaked havoc in Egypt, it became this guiding light for the people in the wilderness. Every night there would be this fire that would guide them. And then ultimately that fire came and rested on Mount Sinai, consumed the entire mountain, and Moses went up into that fire and had this extremely intimate, awesome moment with God that we read about in Exodus 33 and 34. But that's another message. I can't go into it. I love it, though. Come to the Explore class. You'll hear more about it. But all of this, as Moses was saying yes, as Moses came out of hiding, he got to see that God just expanded and expanded, that that all-consuming fire consumed all the darkness, but didn't consume him. And it was this beautiful thing that happened. Um, Jesus said it this way when he came on the scene, and he was sitting with his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. He had gathered them to himself. And in this day, the people of God, the Israelites, were now under the Roman oppression. And Jesus basically said the same thing that Adonai, that Yahweh had said to Moses. He says to them, look, you guys are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The same God. We sang about it. Worthy you were, worthy you are, worthy you always will be. He's never changed. His message never changed. His children, his sons and daughters are not meant for hiding. They're not meant for shrieking back in fear. And laying low. As Paul says in Philippians 2, they're to shine like the stars in the heaven among a wicked and perverse generation. God has called us 
to be light. And when we hide, not only are we causing our own lives to not experience the fullness of God, but we're taking away the light from a world who desperately needs it. We're called to shine. In Ireland, I, I tried to do this. Um, there was a number of ways that we tried to kind of get out there. <laughs> um, I mean, outside was hard because it was sideways rain all the time. Um, and it was dark by 4 p.m. And, uh, and there were a lot of different ways that we tried. But one of the ways that I tried was I would play soccer with guys on Tuesdays and Thursdays, 8 p.m. And uh, we would show up at the field, and literally these guys played rain or shine. That's what they said, but basically there was no shine, so they just played rain or harder rain or sideways rain or frost, a um, little bit of snow every once in a while, but mainly, mainly just freezing um, all the time. I would wear just layer upon layer upon layer, and they're just out there in shorts and short sleeves. And, and I, yeah, it was, it was weird. Um, but I just try every Tuesday and Thursday, I would show up a little bit early to see if I could maybe engage some of them in conversation a little bit, you know, just, you know, trying to get to know them, see if I could sneak a little bit of, you know, the, the, the Lord in there. And, and, uh, and no, but nobody got out of their cars until it was literally time to play because it was freezing and rainy. And then as soon as we were done playing soccer, they're like, vroom, right back into their cars and out of there. And, you know, they had to wake up early for work or whatever. And, um, and it was miserable outside, so they didn't want to just stand there. And, uh, and, you know, the Irish culture is an island, so there's a little bit of that island feel, like everybody who's not born and raised, you know, on a farm right next to a cow or something um, is basically just a blow-in. So there's a little bit of that you're trying to work through, and um, we, had, we had all of that. So I just kept trying, Tuesday, Thursday, Tuesday, Thursday. I mean, I went to all of September 15th was the first one. I know that because that was my birthday. Um, they didn't know that, but I knew that. And, uh, and, and then literally... I mean, I had the slightest of opportunities. I would see him in town a little bit at the grocery store here and there or whatever. Like we just little, very little interaction. I was just so frustrated the whole time because I was trying to bring the light of Christ in and I just had no opportunities. And then uh, was my last Saturday there. So all of that time, literally almost nine months, one of the guys who we called Sushi, don't, I still don't know quite why we called him Sushi, but he was, he was fun. And he sent a text out to everybody in the WhatsApp thread. I played soccer and said, hey, it's David's last Saturday, this, this Saturday. Why don't we all take him to the pub for, you know, one last pint? And, and so I was, it was funny because I was like, I'm in. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it would have been a little bit weird if, if I didn't say, hey, sounds good to me. Um, and, and so they, you know, everybody was like, oh, I can make it or I can't make it, yada, yada, yada. And, and we ended up showing up, and there was like 15 to 20 guys that showed up. And I thought, that's amazing. That was almost all the guys. And we showed up about 9 o'clock on a Saturday to this pub, and, and you know, multiple guys offered to buy me a pint. But um, I was like, just one will be fine. <laughs> you know, just one's good. Uh, I don't even like the way it tastes, so um, <laughs> I didn't say that. No way. <laughs> Uh, oh, this is great, man. Oh, oh. Um, it is better there than it is here, that's for sure. But we were just in this moment. It was like after all this time, they just started asking me question after question after question about my life, about what I do, about all these things. And I had tried in text threads to like throw a little question out or a little something out. It would just be like silence. I just ruined all the conversation. 
But in this, they just wanted to know everything. And I told them so much about Jesus. I told them all the things that Jesus has done in my life. And how that's exactly why we're here is because of Jesus. And we want to see other people get to know Jesus and what he can do in their lives. It was so cool because they were just listening so intently in this moment. And uh, what, what made it feel super significant to me was right, right at about probably 11.30, maybe it was midnight, I was realizing it was probably a good time for me to go because most of the guys were, you know, not as with me as they were when we first got there. Uh, and, and, and as I was walking out, I was, I was saying goodbye to everybody. I was walking out and all these guys, now again, this, this is not about me. This was just a real testimony to me that the Lord had done something we'd been praying for. And they were chanting, USA, 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 as I walked out of the place. And I looked back and I was just laughing. I was just grinning because it was so funny to me that all this time, you know, I was trying so hard to just, you know, get to know them and see if there's anything I could help. And, you know, all these connections. And it took all this time before finally there was this moment, this moment. And the way they said that was like they knew that I wasn't just there to try and, you know, change them or, or make them like me or make them American or something. But I, I really cared about them, and they actually honestly cared about me. They were saying things like, we don't know what we're going to do without you. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're just going to play soccer in the freezing cold. I, um, but it, it was just this neat moment of connection where the Lord was kind of just smiling, and it was like, there's the light. There's the light. And so that's what it looked like for me. I'm going to tell you some other things as we bring this to a close here that maybe it might look like for us at this time. And some of them are a little bit more obscure and you're going to have to do a little work. Some of them might be a little bit more on the nose. But for Moses, coming out of hiding, it meant that he was to re-engage with his past. He was not to hide from it anymore. But he was to re-engage with the ones that he had hurt the ones that he had left behind, the ones he had wronged or deserted, maybe asking for forgiveness, going back into those hard relationships and saying, hey, is there something we can do to make this right? Because I know I've done wrong. It's a scary thing, but that could be coming out of hiding. Reengaging with the ones who had hurt him, the ones he was afraid of, the ones who had lied to him, Granting them forgiveness. It's a hard thing. Don't do that alone. Talk to someone before you do. Walking in obedience to God, no matter what, or how scary or inconvenient the thing was that God was asking him to do. That was coming out of hiding for Moses. It was very scary. I love it. Pope Francis, one of the things he says is, ask what, the, what Jesus wants you to do and then be brave. Because <laughs> whatever Jesus asks you to do, it's going to take bravery. That's why I live in streams of trying to build up courageous people. Because our faith takes a lot of courage. Baptism. It's coming out of hiding. Hey. Got some baptisms today. We had a bunch of baptisms last service, which was fun. It's a great way to come out of hiding. Our faith is not a private thing. It is a public thing and a private thing. And baptism all about that outward declaration of something that Jesus is doing inside your heart. So baptism, confession, is an important way to come out of hiding. At men's retreat, we had a bunch of guys up there who were really hungry for the Lord in a, in a unique, special way. And a lot of them were starting to share some of the things that have been binding them up, some of the things that they'd been hiding, even from their own wives and kids. 
and friends and pastors. And once you come out of hiding in that regard, then the healing can actually begin. But it doesn't always all happen in one moment. Sometimes it's hard because then you've got to tell somebody you love something that you've been doing that might be hurting them. You've got to be good. You've got to be careful with that. But as we do these things, as, as we step into these gradually and carefully, we're coming out of hiding and we're going to get to see the fire of God ultimately ignite and spark and flame and do its goodness in our lives. Saying sorry to someone, asking someone at work if they know Jesus, signing up for missions trips or volunteering at Young Life or something like that, these things will get you out of hiding real quick, real quick. I love what Alec wrote as he was helping my message get a little better this week. He said, maybe coming out of hiding is rather than ignoring the worldly conversation at work, you engage in it and even awkwardly try and bring Jesus into it. Maybe it's intentionally inviting someone to church every week or maybe more importantly, your house for dinner. Maybe it's abandoning the belief that it's rude to talk about religion and replace that with an understanding that it's only rude if you're rude. Maybe it's stop believing that the Christian worldview is privately true and has no bearing on the truth or, of science becoming a student of apologetics and Christian philosophy so that you don't cower when smart people challenge your faith. This book can help you with that right here. All of those things that, that she had said about Christianity, that people often see the Christian faith as racist, anti-intellectual, homophobic, or the denigration of women, she actually goes through and helps you understand that it's the Christian faith that actually brought equity and, and beauty in all of those areas out of the Greco-Roman culture. And ultimately, if we want to see the fires of God's love and truth keep marching on, anybody want to see that? Yeah. One of the most important things we can do in these post-Christian winds is to come out of hiding. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you that you didn't leave us alone, but you gave us your word. You gave us your spirit. You gave us each other. You gave us all those who've come before us. You gave us a brain. And you've given us experiences. That help teach us. We're so thankful, Jesus, that you came into this world and you showed us an example of what it looks like. And we thank you that you didn't let fear or greed or hate or jealousy overtake your beautiful heart but you showed us truth and beauty and goodness. And we so long to see those things, and we so long to create those things in this world, Lord. And I pray that you would help each person in this room to follow your way, Lord, with your strength, with your mind, and with your heart. We thank you so much that there's people today who are wanting to get baptized. 
which shows that your fire is still burning bright. Your arm is not short. You're still reaching people. We thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that we really would step into our role of being your hands and your feet in this world. Show us what we can do this week, Lord, to bring your light to someone who's in darkness, to bring your love to someone who's alone, to bring your truth to someone who's confused, to bring your mercy to someone who's beating themselves up. Thank you, Lord. Amen.